The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me. Go to the front of your Bible. So go to the book of Genesis, the first book of your Bible, flip over to Genesis chapter 34. So we're continuing our study this morning. Uh, We've been doing a study, the gospel and the life of Jacob. Uh, We're almost to the end of that study. We've been in it through the summer. uh, And in the fall, we will be moving in. Remember, we like to rotate between Old Testament and New Testament. For the fall, we'll be moving into the book of Colossians. Uh, But we left off last time, quick review, Jacob and Esau, remember chapter 33 was this amazing picture of reconciliation, this beautiful, one of the most beautiful scenes in the scriptures of forgiveness. And then after they are reconciled, and after the reunion, Jacob, remember right at the end, and this is going to be significant, we'll see, right at the end of chapter 33, he buys land from the sons of Hamor, and he settles down near the city of Shechem. And so reconciliation, 20 years of uh, this very difficult relationship or no relationship with his brother, now reconciled. He purchases land. He's settling down. It appears that things are shifting and that things are finally looking up for Jacob. Like his, the hard parts of his life are behind him. Things can only get better. As we're going to see this morning, unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, as we're about to see, things get worse, much worse, worse than anything. And there's been a lot of bad stuff in Jacob's life if you've been coming to this series. But it's about to get much worse, worse than anything that we have seen up until this point. You will see what I mean as I read in my opinion, one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 34. Even this is the Word of God. Follow along with me as I read this passage starting in verse 1. It's a long passage. Hang with me. Um, Now Dinah, the the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done." But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. And take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. 
And Shechem also said to her father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as a great, as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father uh, Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you. We will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. And so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all the beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All went out of the gate of his city. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it was felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives. All that was in the house they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray. I need some help this morning as I always do, but particularly with this difficult passage this morning, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, come. Come and do what only you can do. Take this passage and apply it no matter where we find ourselves this morning. Apply it to each and every heart in this room and show us Jesus and good news of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If this is your first visit uh, to faith, uh, welcome. <laughs> uh, very difficult and horrific story. I mean, think about it. Rape, deceit, revenge, 
silence and passivity in the midst of these things from Dinah's father Jacob and circumcision and we could go on. And so the question is, why in the world are we looking at this passage? Why not skip it? Lots of people throughout church history and even respected commentaries skip this passage. Two reasons. Because of what we believe about the Bible and what we believe about Jesus. We believe that this book, the Bible, from cover to cover, is God's Word to us and is our only rule in faith and in life. And that's one of the reasons why we as a church, we just march through books of the Bible. And by doing that, it forces us to deal with passages like this that we would otherwise skip. And I thought about it this week. But because of just marching through Scripture, it forces us to deal with passages like this one. We want to be a church that deals with difficult passages. Why? Because we believe 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture, not some Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for us. Even this passage is useful to teach, correct, train in all righteousness. The other thing is what we believe about Jesus. We believe, if you were here last week, that the real Jesus... Not the Jesus we have in our minds and make into our own image or the Jesus we see in our culture, but the real Jesus, we believe, has something to say about the darkness. That he enters into the dark places of humanity and society and into the hard situation and he redeems and he forgives and he brings hope and he brings life. And so with that in mind, let's look at this passage. Three headings if you're a note taker. The mistreatment of Dinah. The revenge of the brothers. And the silence of Jacob. So that's where we're headed. Let's look at the mistreatment of Dinah. Let me give you a little context. Remember, Jacob had one job, Genesis chapter 28. He told God, he promised that he would go back to Bethel. And he would worship God there. And he doesn't go to Bethel. He stops short of Bethel in Shechem and buys land there. And Bethel is 20 miles away. One day's journey. But you see, Jacob is showing here half-hearted obedience. He didn't go all the way. He was half-hearted. He didn't obey God fully. Derek Kidner, a commentator, says, By halting his own pilgrimage, Jacob endangered others who were more vulnerable than himself. And the consequences of Jacob's half-hearted obedience were disastrous. And particularly for his only daughter, Dinah. Again, we're just going to walk through this passage. Look at verse 1. Dinah's introduced. Notice how she's introduced the daughter of Leah. Why is that important? Jacob didn't want to marry Leah, remember? The only reason why he married Leah was to get to Rachel. Dinah is Jacob's only daughter. And everyone believes she's around 15 years old at this time. And she goes out to see the women of the land. And every time women of the land is referenced, it's speaking of pagan Canaanite women of the land. 
And just like it would be, you know, but particularly in this day and time, a girl of her age was not to go out unchaperoned into a foreign land because it was so dangerous. Why does Jacob let her go? Well, perhaps because she was born of Leah. And he didn't care that much for her. But regardless, Jacob was her father. And he was supposed to engage and protect his only daughter, Dinah. Verse 2, she goes out to see the women of the land, but someone sees her first, if you look at verse 2. Shechem, the prince of the land, saw her first. And then look at the description. I know this is difficult. He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. Let me give you a couple of comments. The word seize is the exact same word used when Eve seized the delightful fruit in the garden in Genesis 3. She sees it. It's a delight to her eyes. And then she seizes it. So that's what's happening here. Shechem sees something that's a delight to his eyes and he sees it. He seizes it. He takes hold of her. And then you see, the, if, if the English is not horrific enough, the Hebrew is more brutal. It says, Shechem did not lay with her, as our translations say, but a more literal translation would be, he lay her. The verb humiliate means afflict or mistreat or abuse. And so Shechem rapes Dinah. That's what's going on in this passage. Verse 3. This is pretty twisted. His soul was drawn to her, and he loved her and spoke tenderly to her. That should make you sick at your stomach. It's like a scene out of a horror movie. Verse 4. He goes and then asks his father if he can have her hand in marriage and for him to start the marriage negotiations. And that sounds strange to us, but some of this was cultural. Deuteronomy chapter 22 says when a woman had been mistreated, the right thing to do was to protect her and provide for her in that culture, and that would mean to marry her. And listen, yes, I know that it's sick and twisted, but one of the strategies, rape was one of the strategies that was frequently used in the ancient Near East to force a family into a marriage contract. And the commentators say that's what's going on here with Shechem's request to marriage. But where is the apology? Where is the repentance? Where is the remorse? Where is the dad? I did a horrible thing, and I need to make it right. Now, you see, this is just what Hivite men did, and it was horrific. And I want you to know this morning that God thinks it's horrific too. Remember one of our Bible study principles throughout this series that's really important, particularly as we study the Old Testament it's just because God or the Bible describes sin doesn't mean it prescribes it. Just because the Bible, God records something, 
doesn't mean he endorses it. Did you notice that God's name's not mentioned one time in this passage? Nor is God sought after. What God is doing here is unmasking sin. He's not endorsing it. He's showing us what happens when we attempt to rule ourselves. He's showing us what happens when we move him right on out of the picture. And when we move God out of the picture, horrible things will and do happen. And that's what we're seeing here. And we see it throughout a lot of the Old Testament. God pulls back the curtain and he says, let me show you just what it looks like when the restraints are removed from the human heart. And when the human heart has no king, that's what's happening here. We see further what God thinks of it. Look at verse 7. It's very subtle. Did you pick up on it? An outrageous thing has been done in Israel For such a thing must not be done. That's God's way of saying this is wrong. This is God's way of saying this is evil. This is God's way of saying this is not my design for the world. Women should never be treated in this way. For such a thing must not be done. This is evil and wrong. And the numbers say, statistics show one out of six females have been victims of attempted sexual assault. You know what that means? That in a room this size, there are people, some of you, who have been victims of attempted or sexual assault. And if that's happened to you, I want you to know I'm so sorry. That should never happen. More importantly, I want you to know that God's sorry. And I want you to know that God sees what happens in the dark. God sees everything that happens in the dark. Now, I don't know why it happened. God doesn't tell us, but he hates it. He weeps over it, and he is with you and will never leave you nor forsake you. The second thing, it was not your fault. Notice this passage. What happened to Dinah? was not her fault. What you see to be evil and know to be evil is evil. And God thinks it's evil too. And one day, Jesus is coming back. And if right justice has not been mediated this side of heaven, when Jesus comes back, it will be. Because he will right all the wrongs in the world. Secondly, the brother's revenge. Look at verse 7. They come in, and they're indignant and very angry. The brothers recognize that this is wrong and that this is horrible. And did you also notice who doesn't have a voice the entire passage? Who do we not hear from in this passage? You don't hear from Dinah. She has no voice, but her brothers are trying to give her a voice. Verses 8 through 12 Let me try to summarize this. Shechem and Hamor are trying to will and deal with uh, the brothers. And remember here, Israel is not supposed to intermarry with other nations because God knows their heart will be drawn into idol worship uh, and they are supposed to be distinct as God's people. And so Shechem and Hamor start to say, hey, let's start to live together. Let's intermarry, let's trade, let's dwell, let's buy property And then Shechem 
says, whatever, he can't get Dinah off of his mind. Whatever I need to do to marry Dinah and for her to be my wife, that's what I will do. Notice not a word still said about her rape. It's simply business as usual. And so at this point, we see righteous anger, which is good, from the brothers. We see indignant uh, over what happened to her sister, good and right response. But what happens next is not. Look at verses 13 through 17. They agree to the terms on one condition, that not only Shechem, but all of the males of the city will be circumcised. Look at verse 13, very significant, deceitfully. And so the brothers deceive, perhaps they learned that from their father, Jacob. They deceive Shechem and Hamor uh, with the covenant sign of circumcision that was supposed to separate God's people and signify a new life and a new heart. And they use it instead of that as a means to bring about death and murder. Verses 18 through 24, the Hamor and Shechem go to the city gates and say, everyone be circumcised, but they have some deception of their own. Look at verse 23, they tip their hat. Will not their livestock and their property and all of the beasts be ours? And so you see, Jacob's sons are not the only one that's deceiving. The Shechemites were planning um, to use Israel for their own financial gain. That's part of the reason why they wanted to be circumcised. And they do. They listen and they get circumcised. Look at verses 25 through 29. The third day when the men were incapacitated, they were sore, Simeon and Levi, the brothers, come into the city and they massacre everyone. All of the men. And the most shocking line, I've never noticed this before in this story, verse 26. Look at it. They killed Hamor and Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Do you see it? Do you catch it? At just this point in the narrative, uh, the, the narrator drops this bombshell that while Hamor and Shechem were actually negotiating for Dinah's hand, where was she? In their house being held hostage. So we have rape and deceit and mass murder and kidnapping and revenge. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it does. Look at verses 27 through 29. The other sons come and plunder the city, but look at that. Um, All their wealth and all of their little ones and all of their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and they plundered. There's so much we could say, but here's what I want you to see at this part of the story. And please know, I do not want to minimize what has been done to Dinah. Indignation and anger, right response. Mask murder, wrong response. The brothers were right to be angry. They were right to want justice for Dinah. However, the problem came when their anger and their indignation gave way to vengeance and sin, and they enacted some wickedness of their own. And so the question we like to ask around here, okay, so what does this, especially this, have to do with our life on a Tuesday afternoon? Well, 
I think this is a very convicting part of this passage. It was for me this week. How often do we justify our own sinful actions and responses by being appalled at the sins of others around us? How often do we, when someone has committed sin against us or wickedness against us, do we say, take that, and we give some wickedness right back? It might not be to this level, but do we do that inside of our own hearts? And I think there's nothing more relevant in our culture right now at our day and time than this. Because if you haven't noticed, we're living in a very angry culture. And if you don't believe me, hop on social media. And what you will find is people talking past one another, people speaking, spitting and spewing venom at one another and hatred at one another. But the sad part of all of it is you know who's right in the middle of it? We are. As Christians, we often respond in the exact same way. We don't have tolerance, do we? And dare I say hatred inside of our own hearts towards people or towards groups that don't think or act the way that we think they should. And our justification is often, well, they sinned first. And not only that, they sinned the worst. Listen, I'm not saying we don't need to be involved in culture. Christians need to be involved in every, every aspect of our culture, and we need to influence it and make an impact on it. What I am saying is we need to engage the culture differently than the rest of the world. Why? Because Jesus says what? Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, listen to this, repay evil with blessing. What would it look like for us to pray? And to seek God when we feel like we've been wronged and hurt and respond, not in the same way that everyone else is, but in a different way that honors God and pleases Him and brings blessing. Israel was to be a blessing to the nations, and so are we. Shechem, listen, he should have received right-mediated justice. And instead, God's people brought further fallenness to the world by killing and plundering an entire group of people. And notice I said God's people. Yes, this is God's covenant family. These are God's people that are doing these things to the Shechemites. Friends, we must stop dividing the world into good people and bad people. We're all bad people. And you either have a Savior... Jesus, or you need a Savior. And you see, the danger of religion is that we can be involved in so many good things that it deceives us into thinking that we're pretty good. And it could lead us to think that, hey, I'm one of the good guys, and those people over there, I'm not like them. They're the evil people. The Bible says that the seed of every sin resides in the human heart. And if you haven't committed Uh, those sins, it's not because you don't have the potential. 
But it's because God in His grace is restraining you. Lastly, the silence of Jacob. So if the brothers overreacted, we could say Jacob underreacted. Uh, look how passive he is in the passage. In verse 5, he's silent when he hears the news. He's not outraged. Uh, he doesn't engage Hamor in the marriage proposal. Hamor has to talk to Jacob's sons. And so here's Jacob not going to Bethel, responding, not responding appropriately to evil uh, against his daughter, and he's not helping and leading his family and guiding the sons uh, hey, you know, and helping them channel their anger in a way that would honor God. He is indifferent, and the consequences are tragic. And when he finally speaks, he makes it all about him. Do you notice that? Verse 30. You brought trouble on me, making me a stink to the inhabitants. Jacob manages eight personal pronouns in one verse. I, me, and my. Look who's got the last word, verse 31, and this, how, this is how the story ends. Notice they say, our sister, not your daughter. One scholar makes a note here that there are two possibilities based on the grammar, and the possibilities for he in the verse are either Shechem or Jacob. And so if Jacob is the intended he, then the brothers, disgusted by the silence of their father and the fact that he reprimanded them, he says that it could be translated, should our father treat our sister like a prostitute? That's how the story ends. It's a terrible story. It doesn't have a nice, happy ending. We're not told what happens to Dinah. We're not told if she experiences freedom or from her pain and her shame. We don't know what happens to the women and the children of Shechem. And the biggest question, however, is really the question of the entire Old Testament is what is God going to do with the pain? What is he going to do with the evil in this world and within the human heart? It's there a way for God to treat the awfulness of sin with appropriate seriousness and yet uh, redeem the sinner. Say it another way, can there be justice for evil that's been uh, against us and committed against us, but also that provides forgiveness for our evil and our sin and the things that we have done and in chapter 49 of the book of Genesis, hang with me because this is when it gets good. This is the amazing stuff. And you can read this this afternoon. Genesis chapter 49, Jacob doesn't speak in this scene, but on his deathbed, he does speak. And did you know he curses what Simeon and Levi have done here. And he doesn't speak over them a farewell blessing. Instead, he passes over them in favor of, you know who? Judah. Judah. Who's in the line of Judah? The Messiah. Uh, the Lion of Judah. That's the whole point of Matthew chapter 1 is to say Jesus is the one coming in the line of Judah. You can't make this up. The Bible is astounding and amazing and the entire Old Testament points forward to Jesus, the one who would come 
and would deal with the evil and the sin of the world. God is even using this to work out his purposes, this awful scene. And he's working out his purposes in the world through our sin and our evil. And he does it through Jesus as Jesus comes in the world. And he doesn't come swinging the sword like Dinah's brother, but he takes the sword and it falls on him. Instead of people dying for the sins of their prince, like Shechem, Jesus, the true prince, the true king, dies for the sins of his people. You see, it's at the cross that we see God's divine justice, the sword of his justice, fall on Jesus. He stood under the wrath of God, taking our sin and the things that have been done against us and what we deserve. Why? Because not only is he just, but he's also merciful and loving And he lays his life down on his own accord because he's full of grace and he wants to be with his people. And at the cross, we see justice and God's mercy meet. God is so just that he had to die. But he's also so good and gracious that he was glad to die. And so it's the cross That's how God deals with the evil of the world and yet saves sinners. We live in a fallen world, and so justice this side of heaven will not be mediated out perfectly, but a Christian can trust Jesus, can trust Jesus and not take matters into our own hands because we know Jesus is coming back, and he's going to mediate out the justice perfectly when he returns because he's going to wipe evil from the world. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're stuck in guilt. Maybe you're stuck in shame because of the things you've done. Maybe part of your story is that you've sexually assaulted someone. And you feel such shame. You feel like that's the thing that can never be forgiven that is too big. Friends, the good news of the gospel is no one is beyond the grace of God the reach of the grace of God. Or maybe this morning you feel broken and used because of the things that have been done to you. The answer is the same, Jesus. Because this Jesus of the Bible, yes, he's big enough to forgive, but he's also big enough and powerful enough to redeem and to restore you. He loves broken sinners, but he also loves to take broken stories and unwind them and put them back together. The good news of the gospel is that this real Jesus doesn't avoid the dark places in life, but he moves into the darkest corners And he forgives, and he restores, and he transforms, and he gives us hope. All of us desperately need this Jesus this morning. Will you come to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for moving into the dark places to heal us. Forgive us for trying to be our own king. Would you, Lord, give us faith to believe that We don't have to come on our own perfect record that we can come to you as we are and you will restore and redeem and transform us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.